What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the word exchange? If you're a snowbird or maybe you like to travel, you might think it's a currency exchange. Maybe it's a gift exchange, like a Christmas party and a white elephant that's taking place. Maybe you go grocery shopping, men, this never happens to you, and your wife asks you to buy something and you accidentally buy the wrong product and you're sent back to do an exchange. You know what I think about? One word, Costco. (laughs) And if you've ever met my kids, you know exactly why. They break everything. And you might think, oh, he's just talking about his two boys. No, my girl is as crazy as the boys are. So here's what happened. I get home from work one day, and my son decides he's going to dress up as Spider-Man, and he's going to climb onto the headboard in our bedroom, and he is going to do aerial flips, and he is going to act like part superhero, part WWE wrestler, and he's doing everything he can to impress his mom and his dad and his older brother. And then he smashes a lamp. And the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, well, did we buy it at Costco? (laughs) I don't know if it was the same week, but it was also last month. Our little cordless vacuum cleaner um, finally gave out and they stopped working. And I know for sure we bought this one at Costco. So I take it back and the lady gives me my full exchange. And I said, but I'd like to exchange it for another one. She goes, oh, we don't sell this vacuum anymore. We only sell the better part, the better version of it. And it was totally free. And I think to myself, what sort of magical store is this place? But since Costco isn't sponsoring this message, let's get on to some other stuff. (laughs) Do you remember your first car? It doesn't have to be new. For most of us in this room, it probably wasn't. But it was yours. No longer do you have to rely on mom and dad. You don't have to borrow their ride anymore. You've exchanged their ride for your very own. You don't have to bike to work. You exchange two wheels for four, and you now have freedom. You don't have to take the bus. You don't have to wait for your friends to pick you up. You get to have your very own car and go wherever you want. Whether it's a new currency, a store return, or even an upgraded ride and exchange something for something better, don't you wish life were that simple? Walking into the bank, you can exchange your uh, Canadian money for whatever place you're going to visit. It's easy. Getting out of a dead-end job, not so much. Walking into the grocery store to exchange um, one box of diapers for a new box of diapers. That's easy. Fixing a broken relationship? It isn't. Saving up some money to upgrade your car? That takes some work. But how do you get out of anxiety and depression? when everything seems hopeless. At times, maybe even more than we'd like to admit, these questions keep us up at night. These questions don't care about how old you are or how young you are. These questions don't care about how much money's in the bank account or how much isn't. These questions don't care about your faith or your background or where you live. These questions come to all of us. How are we going to fix that broken relationship? How do we have hope when the world seems so hopeless? How do we move forward when we can't even get out of bed in the morning? 
If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible here in Traditions, you can pick a Bible out of the pew rack in front of you um, in Renew. We invite you to go to the Connect booth, which is just out the doors of the hallway you came into. Or if you want to have a Bible with you at all times, you can pick up your smartphone, go to bible.com slash app and download it so it's always with you. We are in the book of Isaiah. And sometimes the Bible can be a little bit intimidating. So open it up to the table of contents. You'll find the book of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. Isaiah chapter 40. A little bit of context as we go there. Last week, Pastor Mel did a wonderful job of walking us through those first three chapters of the Bible and unpacking that tension that we face. In the very first page of Scripture, we read this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But then just two chapters later, we read that these two people he created, Adam and Eve, have not done a marvelous exchange, but rather they have done a disastrous one. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they're banished from the Garden of Eden. So what does that mean for us? Are we beautiful because we're made in God's image? Or are we broken because all of us in this room have sinned, every single one? The answer Pastor Mel walked us through last week, it doesn't mean we're beautiful or broken. It doesn't mean that we're beautiful and broken. It means that we live in this tension of being beautifully broken. Fast forward to a time when it's not just two of God's people being removed from a garden, but an entire nation of Israel is about to be taken into captivity. The nation of Israel, like Adam and Eve, have been rebelling against God and have not listened to the warnings that God has given them over and over and over again. And then the absolute unthinkable happens. A foreign army marches up to Israel and takes them into captivity. Isaiah chapter 40 is written to a people in exile. Isaiah chapter 40 is written to a people like us. And Isaiah chapter 40 is telling us about an offer of comfort. It's where the marvelous exchange begins. It's a reminder that there is a better life available, that God is deeply invested in us. And a marvelous exchange is certainly possible. As I started putting this message together, I had no intention of reading the entire chapter, but the more I studied, the more I reflected on it, the more I thought, this is so beautiful. We need to read it together. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles with me, Mel and I always preach from the New International Version, or if you want to just sit back and listen, maybe even close your eyes, think about the comfort that is taking place here. This is Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make make it straight in the wilderness, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed." And all of humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The glory withers, the grass withers and the flowers fall because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. 
you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a sheep. He gathers the lambs in his arm and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand wherewith the breadth of his hand marks the heavens, who has held the dust and the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, the craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the very beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. It's powerful stuff. And sometimes I think that's the problem. We read this comfort, we hear of this comfort, but do we actually believe it's true? Do we believe a marvelous exchange is actually possible? When people say hi to you in the foyer, how often is your response, I'm doing really well, thanks for asking. Incredibly peaceful. Yourself? I couldn't be better. That's not how we respond, is it? If I were to say to you, what do you say to somebody in the foyer when they ask how you're doing, you'd probably give three responses. Good, I'm busy, I'm tired. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that first response. I'm good can mean a lot of things. Oftentimes it's just that start of the conversation. You ask me how I'm doing, I say good. I ask you how you're doing, you say good. Now we get to the real point. Sometimes we're a little bit too busy, we're in a rush, and it's kind of a greeting. How are you doing? Good. You? Good. Excellent. And you keep on walking. Sometimes it's because we don't want to get into the deeper things of life. But that other answer, I think we need to dive into a little bit. What do we mean by saying, I'm busy? Perhaps a sociologist could give us a more definitive answer, but searching for articles online, I realized it was nearly impossible to find anything written on this subject before 2014, in just five years. 
You may have heard that line from John Maynard Keynes, who in 1930 said, our grandchildren would work only three hours by day, and that only by choice. In a 2014 article, The Economist writes, whizzy cars and even more time-saving tools and appliances guaranteed more speed and less drudgery in all parts of life. Social, social psychologists began to fret, whatever would people do with all their free time? When you tell me you buy a new car, I hope you say, it's very whizzy, Dave, it's whizzy. <laughs> But here's what I find fascinating. Study after study, the biggest one coming out of Oxford University says, we're working the same amount of hours as the generation before us and the generation before them. So what's the disconnect? Oliver Berkman writes, as economies grow and the incomes of the better off have risen over time, time has literally become more valuable. Any given hour is worth more, so we experience more pressure to squeeze in more work. But it's also the type of work that continues to make us more busy. Uh, 50 years ago and before, most people worked in the agricultural business. You can't harvest the crop until it's ready. My uncles own a dairy farm. You can only go and visit that cow twice a day. And yet with smartphones and tablets and the ability to always be on, we want to pound off a couple more emails at the gym or while we're watching our kids' soccer practice. Even on holidays, so I'll just open my laptop and I'll check a few things before I get back to enjoying my peace. With this kind of pressure and an ever-growing to-do list, of course we feel more busy. Where do we find an offer for comfort in this digital Babylon? So it's no wonder that people respond with, I'm tired. The expectations on us, whether male, female, or student, is just overwhelming. How much more does society expect me to do? Can Jesus' words in Matthew 11 actually be true? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And yet, written to a nation in exile, Isaiah chapter 40 is telling us this comfort is absolutely possible. But if God is really going to offer us this comfort, then we need to be honest about our real struggles. Whenever I put a message together, I think about, am I over-promising and then under-delivering? How does this message land to the small business owner who's on the brink of losing everything? How does this land if you're one of those people who's going, Dave, you have no idea what my marriage is like right now. I can barely get out of bed to tackle this. What do I say to the man who sat in my office at the previous church I was working at and told me he would never step foot in church on Sunday because God doesn't care about me. He didn't just leave it there. He told me why he knows for a fact God doesn't care about him. His dad was a violent drunk and he would stumble into his house regularly and night after night he would come in and he would beat whoever was standing in front of him. This man's mom, his siblings, and himself. One night, after a week of horrific beatings, this man who was in my office said, Dave, I heard my dad stumble into the house after another long night at the bar. I got out of my bed and crawled under my bed and said, God, if you're real, 
protect me. God, if you can hear me, if you know I'm present, stop my dad from hurting me. Then his dad walked into his room, reached under his bed, pulled him out, and laid a licking on him. This doesn't sound like comfort. That's a real struggle. And this man in my office would have done everything for an exchange life, but he didn't believe God was there. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Let me paraphrase that. God doesn't see me. God has given up on me. God, are you there? Do you know what it's like for me to be single? Do you know what it's like for me to go to a party on a Friday or Saturday night and people who are kind of well-meaning but really annoying are saying, so, have you met anybody yet? God, how long do I have to live in this chronic pain? I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to have a good attitude. But I wake up, pain. I go through my day, pain. And I go to night, pain. When will this go away? God, do you even see me? Do you know what it's like to go to work and just simply be a cog in the wheel? Do you know how lonely I am? Do you know what it's like to struggle with depression and anxiety? And the ability just to get up in the morning feels like a victory? Isaiah chapter 40 is written to a people in exile. And Isaiah chapter 40 is written to us. Just a few minutes ago, we read that entire chapter on words of comfort. And verse 27 reminds us that that struggle is real. We're still in exile. We're still in Babylon. God, what are you going to do about that? You can keep your finger or your bookmark there in Isaiah. We'll come back to it. But I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for a minute. If you want to join me there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The man who wrote this book of Corinthians is a man by the name of Paul. He was writing to the church in Corinth. And Paul's a pretty big deal. Before becoming a Christian, he was one of the great Jewish religious leaders, deeply respected and trained by the brightest Jewish minds. He was that teenage prodigy on the front of Sports Illustrated. He was Steve Jobs before he became Steve Jobs. He was Doogie Heiser, MD, if you remember that TV show. This is what he says. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Pardon me, we're starting in verse 7. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you catch verse 9? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh for Paul was, but I think it's a good thing that we don't have that certainty because it allows us to relate to him even more. Here's what some of the commentators think it might be. Was it a psychological struggle? As a devout 
and zealous Jew. He was not impressed with these people who followed Jesus, this new sect called the way. And so he persecuted them. He killed them. He threw them in jail. Is it possible that that psychological struggle of, oh my goodness, God, what have I done to your people finally caught up to him? Perhaps it's the constant persecution. This man was whipped to the brink of death five times. On top of that, he was flogged. He was stoned. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He was put in prison. That's got to take a toll on a guy. What about the physical afflictions? People's bodies just don't come back after you've been beaten in that way. There's also thoughts that he was fighting off malaria, that he couldn't see very well, that he may have had constant migraines. Sort of demonic harassment that's taking place. You see it right there in verse 7. A messenger from Satan tormented me. Doesn't exactly sound pleasant. The guys that I went to college with, we were convinced. It's girl problems. That's what it is. He's a single guy. But look at verse 9. In the midst of all of that, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I know we don't do this much. But look to the person beside you and say to them, God's grace is sufficient for you. This might be out of your comfort zone, but I want you to do it anyway. Look to the person beside you. God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient to overcome your anxiety. God's grace is sufficient in your struggling marriage. God's grace is sufficient in your financial challenges. It's sufficient in your biggest life decisions. God's grace is sufficient. Why? Because his power is made perfect in weakness. I love this quote by John Dickerson. Where your limits dead end, God's limitless begins. It's because of this thorn, because of this struggle, that God's power pulsed even more powerfully in his life. Paul came to a life of surrender so God could take over. Paul came to a life of surrender so God could take over. And that's the marvelous exchange. A number of years ago, I was an associate pastor at a different church and we had just come back from something called Leadership Summit. And there was this uh, man who stood up and he had uh, a gifted talk. It was called, uh, his name is Marcus Buckingham and he talked about his book called Now Discover Your Strengths. And so my lead pastor at the time took uh, the staff, or I believe it was four of us, and he said, well, let's walk through what these strengths are. And so we read the book, we took the test and it lays out 34 different strengths that you might have. For me, communication wasn't my top three. It wasn't my top five. And so my pastor looked at me and he says, Dave, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to pull you from the pulpit. It was absolutely devastated. But it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. God, you know that I enjoy preaching. You know that I enjoy the preparation, the study, the delivery but I guess this church doesn't want me to do it anymore. So God, help me to find out what I'm good at and help me to spend time doing it. It dragged me out of this season of self-dependence. It helped me to rely on God even more because I thought somehow in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this loss, I have to depend on God because I don't know where else to turn. 
back to Isaiah. God has not forgotten you. And it's time to surrender your life in exchange for a better one. Because the reason we can share our real struggles, the reason we can share our surrender is because we worship a God of absolute limitless power. This is verses 27 to 29. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. God is not too weak to act on Israel's behalf, and he's not too weak to act on our behalf. Fatigue is never an obstacle that God has to overcome. Though even the world's greatest athletes become tired and weary, God never does. And he renews our strength. There's three words that often describe God. One is omniscient. This idea that God is all-knowing, his intellectual powers are completely unlimited, and he uses them fully and perfectly. In the book of Hebrews, we read, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows what you're thinking at any given moment. He knows how many hairs are on your heads. He knows who's going to win all of today's football games. He knows the cure for cancer. He knows what's going to happen to the rainforest. He knows the secrets hiding behind Area 51. There is nothing beyond his realm of knowledge. God is also omnipresent. God is everywhere all the time and is aware of everything that is happening at any given moment. I love the poetry that describes this in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Think about what that means for just a moment. In the midst of your most difficult struggles, God is with you. In the midst of how difficult it is at work or at school, God is present in that room. In the midst of having a relational blow-up with a family member, a close friend, an employer, a co-worker, God is in that very room, all aware of what is taking place. And he's all-powerful. God is able to do whatever he wants in the means in which he chooses to accomplish it, whether it's Jesus himself speaking of God's power in Matthew, his mother Mary standing before an angel in Luke, or the prophet speaking of his unceasing strength. We read over and over again of his power and his ability to rescue. Over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Mel has taken us to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and saying, in the beginning, God. Nearly identical in John chapter 1, verse 1, the same idea. By his very words, creation comes into existence. The stars in the sky, the birds in the air, the animals on the ground. By his very word, storms are stilled. People are healed. The dead are raised back to life. There is no one as powerful as God. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I want to know more about that. If you're new to church, if you're new to faith, we have something called Alpha And we can explore what it means to be a Christian and what it is that the Bible says. And if you're thinking, I want to learn more, come and talk to me. 
if you're thinking, Dave, I want to be mentally challenged and engaged. I want to know how to defend my faith. In January, we're going to be launching a new series on apologetics. It's not going to be here on the main platform, but it's going to be in one of our Sunday classes. And my friend is leading it. He's going to do a bang-up job. Come talk to me. I can introduce you to him. As great as head knowledge is, though, sometimes we just need a story. Once you hit the age of 35, of which I am now past, and you're an athlete, you get to play in something called the master's division. Makes it sound really impressive, but it's really just a bunch of old guys who can't keep up with the 22-year-olds anymore. I was playing this past summer, and something embarrassing happened to me, something you can't tell to anybody. I had a non-contact injury, and it was really embarrassing. I'm a soccer goalie. I'd made a save early in the game, and I thought, that was a good save, but something doesn't feel right. It's not a big deal. That happens all the time. And then a ball came in, and a forward was chasing it, and I managed to get to the ball before the forward did. And then I realized, I can't get up. So I waved down the ref, and he's like, what's the problem? Come on, let's go. Keep the game moving. I said, ref, I've fallen and I can't get up. And I expected my teammates to make fun of me, and they said, oh, it happens to all of us. It's just part of getting old. (laughs) This was less than 15 minutes into the game. Soccer game is 90 minutes long. That means for 75 minutes, I could sit on the sidelines. And you might think, Dave, don't you go out for wings or whatever with your teammates afterwards? And I do. But that's with a whole group of guys. I hobbled over to the other sideline, and I was sitting by my friend Mikey. Mikey and I went to high school together. And we just started talking for half an hour, just the two of us. We talked about family, we talked about life, we talked about work, and we talked about work some more. He goes, Dave, so you graduated from high school, and you went off to Bible college, and you're a pastor. Tell me about that for half an hour during the soccer game, I sat with Mikey and we talked about God. We talked about what I do for my uh, job, what a regular week looks like. We talked about what Alpha is. We talked about what we preach about. We talked about what we're trying to do. Mike's not a Christian. And I wish I could say, Mike, stand up, wave your hand. He's not here today. He's not coming to Alpha. And I love playing soccer, but God had something so much bigger in store for me. When we set aside our weaknesses to realize what it is God wants to do, who knows what's possible? This past Thursday night, one of our ministries here at the church is called Widow to Widow, where a group of widows get together and they encourage one another and they share stories And they talk about that first birthday and that first Christmas and that first holiday without their husband. And out of their weakness, they minister to one another. You might be aware of this man. His name is Nick Vucicic. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. He was born without arms and legs. And he travels a North American preaching circuit and he talks about God's grace and God's love and how great God is. And people will look at him and say, you have no arms, you have no legs. How can you be this excited? How can you be this encouraged? He goes, because I know how great God is. And when our limits end, God's limitless begins. 
The struggle is real. I hope I haven't downplayed that in any way. But so is God's limitless power. That power that is greater than our struggle. God's power is greater than our struggles. And he offers us this marvelous exchange. Listen to these words to wrap up Isaiah chapter 40. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Remember the context. Isaiah is writing to a group of people in exile. Isaiah is writing to a group of Jews who are surrounded by people who don't act the same, who don't dress the same, who don't worship the same God and have a radically different culture. Sound a little bit like us? And what does God say? Hope in me and I will renew your strength. Isaiah was originally written in Hebrew and do you know what another way of interpreting the word renew is? Exchange. There were a number of reasons that God sent his people into exile. The biggest reason being similar to the reason Adam and Eve got cast out of the garden for not listening to God's word and exchanging God's truth for a lie. One such reason is who Israel would depend on when foreign enemies approached. Rather than remembering who it was that rescued Israel from Egypt, who it was that parted the Red Sea, who it was that fought for them as they entered into the promised land, the land of Canaan, time and time again, they would rely on themselves. And when Israel would go into a battle and they would lose, they would go, oh no, this is terrible. Let's spend a whole bunch of money and hire somebody else to fight for us. And they wouldn't turn to God. God is saying, let me fight for you. Here's the big idea. Exchange your struggles for God's strength. You might be familiar with that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. But are we really that much different than Israel? We think to ourselves, I got myself into this mess, I can get myself out of it. I am so grateful that I get to learn from Pastor Mel. I have a mentor who attends our church, who builds into me regularly, and I'm grateful for him. There's books and there's podcasts and there's pastor friends that I can talk to. But at what point am I just leaning on human strength and not on the strength that God has for me? I was recently talking to a friend of mine who doesn't attend our church. And she said, Dave, I just found out that my teenage daughter has, been, has had a boy force himself on her. She didn't use the word rape. She didn't use the word assault. But she goes, Dave, I know who it is. How do I forgive him? Exchange your struggles for God's strength. When your limits dead end, God's limitless begins. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took his disciples with him to a place called Gethsemane. And he took Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends, and he said, keep watch and pray for me because I know what's going to happen. Knowing full well the very next day he was going to be crucified on a cross, a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world, Jesus began to grow sorrowful and troubled. And this is what we read in Matthew 26. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
In one of his most vulnerable moments, Jesus turns around after praying one-on-one with his dad, and he looks at his three closest friends, and they've fallen asleep. So he wakes them up, and he chastises them, and he does this again. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then a third time. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was exchanging his struggles for God's strength. He knew he couldn't do it on his own. He knew there was no way he could do this on his own accord. The pain was never taken away. Jesus still died on a cross, an excruciating death for our sins. But through his death, a marvelous exchange took place. Salvation was offered to all of humanity for anybody who believes in Jesus. Exchange your struggles. Pardon me. Exchange your struggles for God's strength. We trade our limits, says John Dickerson, for his limitless. We trade our inability for his capability. We exchange our pain for his healing, our weakness for heaven's strength. As my friend was learning, whose daughter had a boy force himself on her. So Jesus teaches us in that Garden of Gethsemane might not happen the first time. Might not happen the second time. We're still going to go through pain. But exchanging our struggles for God's strength is the marvelous exchange. And he knows something better is going to happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is tough but it's also incredibly beautiful. You do not promise that all of our pain will go away on this earth. You do not promise that we will never have pain on this earth. But you do promise at the end of this glorious book that one day every tear will be wiped away. All the pain will be gone. The brokenness restored. And God, help us to bring heaven to earth now. Forgive us for when we try to do things on our own. And help us to keep our eyes focused on you. Where it's not a one-time event where we surrender, but it's an ongoing experience in which we say, God, I cannot do this. I need your help. And the exchange is beautiful. So God, empower us. Strengthen us. Help us to see the beauty in the midst of chaos and how beautiful this exchange is. Thank you for all that you have given us. And as the ushers come forward to collect our offerings, may we be reminded that everything we have has comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.